Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hey, Anton, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Well, how about you? Doing good. Doing good. So, Anton, could you go ahead and give us a short bio and just tell us you know, some things you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, I, right now I work mainly in 3D computer vision, state estimation, things like that for robotics. Um, but th- those are my professional and scientific interests. Beyond that, of course, history of science, culture around technology, all of these things that I think are sort of interesting and important to think about um, are things that I tend to spend a lot of time on. I love that. So Anton, I, I first found your work, I found this essay called The Stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really feel that sometimes we put too much emphasis on like thinking about AI risk and not about the risk of AI not happening. So not enough focus on like on, on, on the tech stagnation problem. And it, it seems like the alternative of a, for a world with um, the growth, like good growth, is just mouthless, right? And it's, we're all fighting over something. You've got to use, you know, you got to go out and you got to capture someone else's stuff instead of just being able to create it yourself. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I think it's a really important concept that is really not discussed enough. Yeah. Um, so with that essay, I wanted to point out that, you know, there's, a, there's this Malthusian concept of a world that's too crowded and nobody really has enough because any sort of economic surplus quickly gets competed away. Um, and everybody you know, ends up just living this miserable hot box for the rest of, essentially for the rest of civilization. Um, that's kind of a short and not entirely accurate version of Malthus thesis. And if Tyler Cowen hears this, he's going to yell at me, but we'll get right. to that. Um, but what I wanted to talk about is actually the downstream consequences of having the belief that you have this finite world which needs to be divided up. And we have historical examples of those sorts of beliefs and ideologies where the question is who gets what, who should rule, or end up being the most important ones. And so it's kind of, it's, it, it's important, not just from the material consequences, but from the ideologies and beliefs that spring out of a system like that, a closed world. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to examine. It's, it's in that essay, but also I think to your point about, you know, worrying about the consequences of AI or, you know, other kinds of disasters, I think honestly, a, a lot of, you know, and I think I wrote in that essay that a lot of them are relatively far-fetched. There are, like, there are other problems that we don't really have a great way of facing right now. I mean, the pandemic is a great example of that. We, are institu- we were institutionally incapable, especially throughout the West, of dealing with this. And this, this was a relatively mild form and hopefully we learn something from this if it, if it had been more deadly we'd be in very very serious trouble not that we're not now so there are there are kind of these benign things and the, the point that i wanted to make in that essay is we're at a point in history that's unprecedented in the sense that we have this enormous economic surplus which we're if we're smart we can deploy to prevent us getting back into this airtight box again if, if right. we deploy it, right, and if we actually think about this and, and actually consider our unique place in history. No, no, no other human civilization 
not even like the heights of ancient Rome, which which relied primarily on on a slave and 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 sort of um, kleptocracy, a theft economy from other from other people, other places, ever created the sort of economic surplus that we have now. And 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 that's like those three points are kind of the things I wanted to raise in that in that essay. I really like that, and it feels like as the political battles become they feel more what's the word like i was talking to my grandmother you know she's much older and she's like yeah you know it's never felt this vivid before and and like it, it feels almost more um what's the word it desperate i guess and, and i wonder if it's more like we're, we're focusing more on dividing up what we have and less of like how do we create new stuff and that seems like a real problem like like you said we've created the surplus and this is like the Industrial revolution is this tiny blip on like economic growth over human history. And we want that to continue because, you know, all these great things can happen and we pull people out of poverty. But it seems like we're at kind of this juncture, this kind of and created this big morass where we need to get out of it. Um, yeah, I, I think I think a big part of what's causing that and why. I mean, honestly, a big part of it is people are bored and alienated. Uh, and right. jumping into the and jumping into this theater of politics and being very performative about what you really believe um, is a part of that. People, you know, people seek meaning and right. um, you know, wanting to be on this big political stage uh, is a way to fulfill that fulfill that need. And I think a lot of it is coming from there. And the reason I say that and the reason that I call it performative is because sometimes you hear about these people who you know describe their beliefs in very hyperbolic ways um, in, in, in all corners of politics, frankly. But then you ask yourself, well, if you really did believe that, how would you be acting, right? right. So if, 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 you, you know, if you truly believe, for example, that the government that you live under was an occupying force, for example, how would, how would you act? We can look into history, how people have acted in those situations. Right. And so we can, you, know, you can sort of test people's beliefs in that. I think there's a subtler point here, though, which is people have lost confidence in our ability to really improve things. I think that at best, people believe that improvement will come from organizing things different, differently as opposed to actual material progress. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is what I mean by material progress is you know, things like things like a nuclear reactor, which is a fundamentally new invention, has an in principle enormous impact on society. Um, the internal combustion engine, um, you know, lead acid batteries, all these things, right? They're, they're, that's, an, that's a material, um, that's a piece of material progress that has enormous social impact. But I think, I think people now are more of the opinion that in order for things to improve or at least change, that has to be done at some sort of social organizational level rather than at this material level. Um, which I think is where a lot of that might be coming from. Do you think people, they just conceptualize it as being too hard to make like hard technical progress or, you know, why is it that focus on organization again, or, or is it just, we've gotten really bad at the organization side. You look at the pandemic, you know, just like inability to organize anything. So that kind of, you know, it, it comes to front of mind. But, but, you know, you sort of have to ask yourself why. And the reason that, for example, politics is the way that it is and we always seem to be in constant gridlock and never seem to be able to get anything actually done whether it's improvement or or you know, disastrous is because this this is uh, an intentional thing um where many more people have a say 
in how things are done than they, they did before. And the more people who have a say, the more interests are represented. And the way in which those interests are represented can of course conflict with the way other people's interests are represented. And so we end up not being like, we. It, it's both a good and a bad thing because it means you can't like bulldoze and evict entire city blocks of, of people to build your highway anymore. That's probably a good thing. But, um, but the consequence of that, the flip side is we've created this new problem where coordination issues become harder and we don't yet know how to solve those. Um, and I think like, like primarily, I think that's honestly a primary cause and that as people see that we can't solve the sort of material things that require the solution to those coordination problems, they give up on the idea of ever solving the problems at all. Or, or uh, they, they fail to see that it's possible to do so. Gotcha. You, you know, in, in 35 episodes or so, we've had a lot of people that come on and, and we talk about this problem of why are we so much worse at coordination and collective action problems. And a lot of people have, have said it's something like we used to have these existential threats we were thinking about that would force people to like, you know, maybe overcome this like selfish desire. So maybe it's, you know, the Nazis or the Soviet Union, or you know, there's some big thing like this top of mind, you know, people are going to work 80 hours a week. So their kids don't get blown up in this, you know, nuclear catastrophe. Do you think, do you buy that at all? I mean, this is a very common thing. We've probably heard this from probably eight people. I think some, I think for some sector of society, it's probably very true um, gotcha. in that it's definitely easier to coordinate a lot of things against a very specific identifiable threat. Gotcha. And then you, you know, and, and for some sector of society that really helps and you can hang all kinds of progress and work and frame it in terms of being, oh, we're up against this threat and you doing this work will help us in that direction. And certainly that influences a great deal of people, but it's not, it's, you know, if, if we're looking at the Cold War as the most recent one, it's not like society was to, in the West was totally mobilized against against this threat and this comes back again to what i was saying if you really believed that this was the existential threat how would you organize your society so it works it works for some sector but i don't believe that that's true in general i think that there are gotcha. many many other motivations that allow like that that create amazing like drive people to do amazing things and we've preserved those motivations in many parts of society that's that's a very interesting that's another interesting fact here i mean if you consider athletics if you consider the arts you know music whatever those are often driven by by cultural things that we've managed to preserve for whatever reason which require less institutional coordination for people to be successful right like if you know, if you're going to be an nfl running back there's a there's a clear path to that with and, you know, very few people need to, there's very few stakeholders on if you become an NFL running back, right. for example, right? So I, I think I think it's true to some extent, which I know sounds like equivocation on my part, but having read, of, you know, having sort of quite deeply gone into both sides of the Cold War and how those two right. places regarded each other, I don't think I don't think that that's a total explanation. I don't even think it's probably the majority of the explanation. I, I think that it's, it's honestly a large part of it is probably explicable by the decay of our ability to solve coordination problems because like, and which we also did intentionally because the way we, we tip the balance is to give many more people equity and, and gotcha. then to have a say. Gotcha. So it's like under the slide to like oligarchy or something like that, where you've got more parties, you've got to, you know, keep happy at the same time instead of just like, you have this one person coordinating, like general groves, the Manhattan project, all these yeah. scientists, we, you could never get these scientists to go to East Tennessee anymore. Like this is not going to happen. 
Right. Like, you know, I, I think, I think scientists are, are, are an interesting example. We'll, we'll, we'll probably get to that later in the, in the, in the show, but it's certainly, it's certainly at almost all levels become more difficult because we've transitioned into this more equitable regime. And it, gotcha. I don't, you know, one thing that I don't like when people seek to explain why we can't seem to get things done is they never, like they, they give these exogenous factors as if our inability or our institutional decay is something resembling an oil shock where there's been some natural disaster and, and all of a sudden the oil supply is cut off. And it's like, no, we, we chose this. There's reasons, good reasons that people decided we ought to do things this way. And we need to look at those reasons too. You know, it's not, yeah. Anyway, I, I, so I, I do a lot of applied mathematics. It's, gotcha. it's a large, it's a large part of my job. And the thing about mathematics is if you, uh, if you are too easily adopting certain assumptions that seem obviously or trivially true, you will get punched in the face. You will run yourself into a corner of your problem space where it's like the entire problem was you were running with this assumption that you thought was true. And it just turns out that for this case, that's actually very important. It's absolutely not. And so I, th I think of that as sort of like an epistemic paranoia. And I, I tend to apply it um, in, especially in matters of sort of history and things like this in, in, in a similar way. Interesting. And, and Todd, that, that's a really elegant and to me original idea about why we might have political paralysis because there's so many perspectives being voiced at the same time. But do you see some kind of possible resolution for this log jam that we've reached? Um, I have I have some ideas regarding especially the areas that interest me and, and a few of my friends have also been thinking about this problem and people much more deeply involved in these problems have been thinking about them for, for quite a while. I think the first step is to recognize that we have this problem and that we have this problem because there's a trade-off that we made and it was a trade-off that at the time we made for good reasons. Right. But after that, I think, you know, we have a few possible approaches. We have something like an increased, um, basically an in giving, giving an increased amount of power to more local entities rather than having to decide everything for everyone at the top. We create better frameworks for smaller groups of people to being able to make decisions locally. And in the past, people have talked about, well, there's a natural limit on, on how groups can make decisions. It's governed by Dunbar's number, kind of excludes the fact that we've made very large decisions for many more people than Dunbar's number in the right. past. But but you kind of you you might be able to solve some of these coordination problems by devolving more decision making capability, real material decision making capability, not not you know bike shed stuff, but like how do we want to run our community, how do we want to run our society, more locally. That does that does though present now a different trade off, which is if you devolve decision making more locally, you only each locality only has the resources to do certain types of things. Like you can't build a Manhattan project out of municipalities in the United States deciding that they want the atomic bomb. Right. You, can, you, you, you can't do that. So that's, that's kind of the trade-off in, in devolving things locally. Another way to do it is to, and, and honestly, so I, I, I wasn't born in the United States, but I admire the American people. And one of the things that I admire the most about the American people is, especially historically, is the willingness as a country and, and as a culture to, just blindly run enormous experiments and be okay and prepared with the idea that you might fail. 
and this is this is this is a, this, it's a strength and a weakness in the culture, but it's mostly a strength. And I think bringing back the idea of experimentation at different institutional levels and saying, okay, you know, we differ on these policies, but what we're going to do is we're going to figure out a version of this where we can run the experiment, where it's sort of sufficiently firewalled, like, you know, for, for, for example, right, let's, let's say for whatever reason you want to remove fluoride from the drinking supply, right? This, this, this might, you know, you probably couldn't do it nationally right away if you wanted to. I don't know why you would, but if you wanted to, but some locality might decide, yeah, you know, we as a locality are okay with removing fluoride from our water supply and seeing what happens. We're, we're you know, we're signed up for the adventure. And then we can, you know, watch and observe and see what happens and be like, well, that was clearly a terrible decision. Let's not do that. Or actually we found out, you know, these other effects, we should learn from that. And we might be, it might institute those policies at a higher level. So those are the two planks that, that, that I kind of foresee. More experiments, being more okay with policy failures and, and, and creating a system that's robust to policy failures and saying, well, you know, that kind of sucked, but we're gonna make, you know, whoever was affected whole to the best way we can. And we're gonna move on. And we're gonna make sure that we don't forget the lessons that we learned. Or if, if it turns out one of our experiments goes really, really well, we ought to have mechanisms that allow us to introduce that in other places and for other people to have those results communicated to them and see, well, actually this, this went really well and here's the reasons why and we think it'll work for you too. And those, those are like things that I think can, can, can break this. Right now we have this static mentality and, and kind of Will, you were alluding to this earlier where it kind of seems like everybody's fighting over this, this same territory as if only one group of people could control the whole thing, right? And if we, if we eliminate a little bit of that idea and, and, and we kind of reintroduce this idea of actually, you know what, like, let's just do things differently here and try it there and, and such and such. And of course, with, with like buy-in from the people who it's going to affect, but that of course, that, that's actually a really nice uh, bounding on how badly you can mess up at the same time in the, in the early experiments too. I think, I think those are way forward. They're, they're difficult problems, don't get me wrong. And, and again, Political science and social theorists who have been thinking about this for years and years could probably give you much more color on that. Got it. Um, Anton, I wanted to ask you, I, I kind of read a lot of your work as kind of like a call for responsibility among like elites in the West. And, and maybe that's that's not fair. I'd love to get your feedback on that. Uh, but it, it does seem to be something real that has been lost. I mean, just recently last night, I was thinking about, you know, man, like, all these McKinsey executives that were helping Purdue Pharma, you know, design these comp strategies for this, you know, sales. And so we can get, you know, the opioids out to the, the masses here. And I was just thinking, I wrote a piece in undergrad, you know, that was like our elites, like our smartest students at university should not be going to McKinsey or Bain or wherever they should be going to try and build things. And the school actually censored out McKinsey and all this stuff. Cause they were afraid that the recruiters would see that and wouldn't want to hire. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was amazing. Uh, but do you think that's a real world phenomenon? So I think that's interesting. And again, one has to ask the question of why. So let's, let's, suppose, let's suppose that such a thing as the elite exists. And let's suppose that the elite is actually represented by, you know, smart kids going off to do management consulting at places like McKinsey. Right. So let's, you know, we need to ask ourselves, why does a student who came into undergrad probably with some beliefs in their mind that they would become a scientist or, or a physicist right. or, 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 you know, an economist or anything like that. Like you, you remember your time in, in, in high school. You didn't very, I believe very few people as children want to become McKinsey consultants. I'm sure it's to be a management. Yeah. Very rare. I, but I think it's rare. Um, 
And most, I bet that some of those people are just the children of McKinsey consultants. But <laughs> we have to ask ourselves, what causes that change? Why is it that children or you know, young adults are dissuaded from pursuing these things, which for which you know, I guess I guess when you say elite responsibility, you're talking about working in those fields that will provide material progress for society as a whole, right? right. That, let, let, let's say that let's say that's the responsibility you're talking about. So the question is, why are people being diverted from that? Well, I think there's I think there's a few reasons, and I think the primary reason, and and I know that you. Uh, that you had a podcast about this, so I'm going to be heretical here, but I actually think we don't have elite overproduction. I think we have elite underproduction. I think we're utilizing these smart people in very poor ways. I think that the issue is not that, oh, you know, these people who go off to be management consultants, they really should become scientists and invent the next cancer drug. Well, why aren't they doing that? Because we're not able to utilize them well for that purpose. This is, this is, this is a, a, I mean, it, you might say that it's a market failure if you were an economist. We were, if the thing that we desire is not what we're allocating resources toward, in this case, people or people's plans, then we're, there's a reason we're failing to allocate that. And you can't, you can't say that it's responsibility because without examining the reasons why people choose to do management consulting over becoming say research scientists or astronauts or test pilots or whatever it is, it's like, well, we, how are those people being utilized? What are those? What are those tracks look like? Why would people select against them? You know, you, you have to. I think I think this is another problem in the discourse that we have collectively decided that people's attributes are immediate, like the the surface attributes and the actions that they take reflect completely on who they are as a person without ever examining how they got there. And right. I, and we need, so honestly, we need more, we need like just to think about this more as a process. Um, and so, yeah, like on that topic of elite responsibility, I think that while this comes back to what I was saying earlier, we should be doing way more experiments. We should be figuring out why the kid who wanted to be a physicist goes off and works at a, as a quant at a hedge fund, right? I mean, I, I know the answer to that and maybe we'll get into it, but um, like we, we, should, we should be like, okay, that's, we don't want that. We're going to try this other thing. We should try the experiment. Yes. I, and I think, and I want to hear, you know, why you think that that kid goes and works as quant. I I think if if I had to guess and uh, tell me if I'm wrong again, it's something about what Don actually talks about where it used to be, you could go and you can get a little bit of money and you could work on that, you know, wacky idea you've had and make that happen over 20 years. But now you've got to go and you got to sell to the grant making agencies. You've got to fight with other faculty and that really sucks. I don't know. Um, and I would, I would completely agree with that. And, you know, when faced with grinding it out in academia or grinding it out in finance, well, at least you get paid in finance. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, if that's the choice that you, as a smart kid who wants to do physics is faced with, that makes sense. And the, the other part of that to examine is there's a feedback effect. If you're an undergrad in physics and you go and learn that your up, you know, upper classmates and, and, and even PhDs, where do they end up? They don't end up doing physics most of the time. They go, you know, they go to Boston Consulting Group or they go to, you know, Rentec or wherever, right? Or they go found startups doing software stuff in Silicon Valley. You are not motivated to continue along the path of becoming a physicist because you don't see anybody who actually went and did that. It's very rare. Right. And that, again, that, that speaks to our inability to actually utilize people who want to do physics. 
so and, and that ties nicely so as you know earlier this week i spoke to don as well yeah um, we read through his book uh, as, as part of an inter-intellect book club i was recently running um and don and i you know agree on some things disagree on a few others um but jointly i think we both agree that the academy which is in principle the producer of these minds who create these material this you know, artifacts of material progress um, has evolved into this system that suits only one particular mode of scientific production. And we need radical approaches and again, radical experimentation um, to provide other paths. And I think that will represent a better utilization of a lot of these people and ultimately will we'll create new opportunities and will allow us to have more of the kind of elites that we have. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I could speak. I could speak to the structure of the academy in quite some depth. So maybe, maybe we'll get to that. I don't know. Let's talk about that a little bit. It, it does seem the universities have really suffered a lot in this respect. I, I see, you know, I, and I think a reckoning is coming to everyone, you know, that's not in the top fifty, um, and maybe that helps, right? Maybe that there's just a glut of like PhD students and and PhD programs, and maybe that will help a little bit. Um, because I, I do feel like a lot of the, the grant making programs that we've created were because politicians, you know, one time Anton, you know, you're a researcher and you blow on the money on something like a fancy car and not your research. And then that's the front page of the New York times or whatever. And then now we've got a, there can be no scientific freedom ever because you might misspend some public dollars <laughs> and then you blow up, you know, the, the whole West collapses, you know, it's like a butterfly flapping his wings. Um, what do you think about that? You know, where did the Academy go wrong and, and, what does that look like? So again, trade-offs, right? Right. You, you can't say, nobody decided one day and, and said, we're going to drive scientific progress off a cliff. Right. Right. They, the, the, so the academy as it exists today is actually due to a set of deliberate choices made immediately after the Second World War, where basically states around the world realized that fundamental scientific um, discovery is a important component of national strategy. The atomic, the atomic bomb is a very material demonstration of that fact. And right. subsequently, and, and you, the thing is, that idea has proven true because it's how we got semiconductors. It's how we got the internet. It's how we got uh, all sorts of things, the GPS system. It's how we got um, LCD displays. Like I, I could rattle off any number of these things. So. It, the changes that happened in the academy actually fulfilled their purpose, which, which we shouldn't forget. But in doing so, we made this trade-off. So specifically what happened was the academy was much more opened up and who could be a scientist and how science was done went from being something that was almost folk knowledge to being something very professionalized. So the, the system that we have today of, of, you know, like grant writing and how money flows through the system and how you get like undergrads to participate in research and then become PhDs and then they postdoc and then they maybe get a faculty tenure or they go work for Rentech or whatever. Um, this was a se series of deliberate choices to fulfill those policy objectives and they succeeded in fulfilling those objectives. The problem is that the objectives that this system was designed to fulfill had the side effect of creating or, or what I think of as, as, as like harmonizing the system overall. 
every university pretty much functions the same way. Every, every, every research group functions almost exactly the same way. Um, there are, you know, you, you, you know which conferences to publish in, you know which funding bodies to go for, you, you kind of know how many seats are at the table in any given year, all of these things. You know what fields are hot. And this harmonization turns science into this monolithic, fairly monolithic enterprise, which it wasn't really before. Um, different communities in science historically have done things in different ways. And, 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 and there's been traditions that have, have gone across disciplines and across national and, and, and other barriers, but generally it was much more predicated on individual relationships uh, and even the way that one became a scientist or even what a scientist was. A scientist in previous years was not a profession. Nobody, like you couldn't, you can't go out and become a scientist. <laughs> you, you're a scientist because of what you do. There's not, there's not like a checklist you fill out, right? Um, and that had to go away to create the system we have now. And it's become, you know, somebody taught me this word harmonized. I've been, call it, I've been calling it homogenized. Um, where now, because if there's this monolithic system, the whole monolith kind of moves together and it's kind of, everything is done one way Everything is done for specific purposes. And one of the consequences of that as well is the academy in general, and, and when I speak of the academy, I'm talking not just about like universities, but you know, industrial research labs, any, any sort of place that's, that's trying to create new knowledge has evolved into this thing where it can absorb arbitrary amounts of capital, any amount of money, any amount, any amount of money it will absorb it without necessarily producing any improvement in, in the output. And, th and that's a concept, again, a consequence of deliberate choices because the academy as it's organized today was specifically designed to run high capital intensive projects like the Manhattan Project. You need, like you, they need, they understood that they needed a lot of physicists to try to farm these new discoveries and then put a lot of capital behind them when it was time to roll them out. But that means you can only do a certain type of thing. And the other effect of this harmonization is like, you had better tie your research onto the hot thing because that's what's getting funding today in the in this monolithic academy. It's uh, it it's really interesting to me. A lot of people you see this in the like you said the discourse a lot when they say trust science, they mean trust the institution, not the process. And these things yeah. these are very discrete things. You know, these are very different. Um, I think. And I think when people say trust science um, in the discourse, they often mean trust science as it's trust the results of scientists as they're communicated through this telephone to, to, to the mass public. And this, this is honestly another thing, despite the fact that we have more PhDs across all fields than pretty much I think we've ever had before. I think I, I haven't kept up on like the year to year, but certainly this decade. Um, Fewer and fewer people seem to, well, I don't know if fewer people, but it's in, in sort of the, the, like the ordinary or common imagination, what scientists actually do is, is more and more abstract. And I think, and I think that, again, that's, that's to do with the homogenizing effect because you never hear like Albert Einstein discovers theory. You hear researchers at MIT, something, something, something. Right. That, that, that's a really good point. It is like, it's ultra, it's, it's just like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste across. And, and that, that, that seems to allow, it doesn't allow for anyone that doesn't fit in that, whatever the mold is to ever escape and create something new. It's, it's very, very difficult to do. Um, this is, this is a point where actually Don and I differ. Don's position is that you should try to preserve your radicalness 
uh, and then you prove to yourself, you know, you prove to yourself and, and close collaborators that you're actually a very strong scientist so that they will back you in his venture research model when it's time to pursue your, your big, weird, radical ideas. Right. right. And that works. That's, that's a model that works. My position on that is a little bit different. My position is that we're going to lose a lot of people ever getting to that stage. And I think we ought to start people off actually at a considerably younger age. My, like, my explicit position, and, and besides this idea of elite underproduction, my explicit position on this is we should be throwing students into real scientific research far earlier in their education career, far earlier. Even if it's just to experience basic lab work that actually matters to a result somebody's trying to get, this is a valuable experience that most people don't have until late undergrad at the earliest. And, and we, we should just do it. Like we should, we, should, should be early. we should take high school kids and put them in research labs. I think that's, I think it's a great idea and it helps prevent, I think the problem with, with Don's thought there is, you know, there's a lot of selection effects and on top of that, it's, you know, it, it's, I, I think people underrate how much of a problem it is to get talked out of your good ideas and social pressure and things like that. And then one day you wake up and you meant to like sell yourself and then prove yourself and then be able to go do your cool thing. And then you're too old, you know, you know. Your, your fluid intelligence has dropped and you just can't do it anymore. And it's too late. It, it just took up too much capital, you know, but, personal capital. Well, here's the thing. I mean, Don's model worked as well. That's fair. So he's, he, he, he Don isn't wrong. All I'm suggesting, and, and again, th this again comes back, this isn't an either or. It doesn't mean we ought to tear down the academy as it exists today as well, because it's fulfilling a function. It, it does pretty well at some things. And we ought, to, we ought to not, you know, we ought not to be blind to that. But what I'm suggesting is we... It's super cheap, very low risk, um, relatively easy given the right set of circumstances and connections to just do these experiments and try different ways of doing this. I mean, in comparison to like the average seed or pre-seed round in Silicon Valley to like start up an independent research lab where you just do math all day in some interesting direction, it's peanuts, nothing. Like I, I think that like I'm first or second order connections with with people who would like lose that money in their pants right exactly um, that, that, that again speaks to the enormous economic surplus that i've been talking about absolutely uh could you talk about that this is a great transition to your grant program you put together i thought this was really cool oh yeah biddle um biddle is kind of funny so that 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 uh, is a joke that got out of control which is <laughs> that's, that's the is best a recurring theme way. in my life um and yeah, sort of the joke, the joke was that like Twitter discourse is really bad. I see all these like young people's, I call them zoomers for Gen Z, yeah. you know, being out here tweeting and contributing to the discourse when instead they should be out like making stuff. So I said, well, I will pay you to not tweet for a week and make me something and show it. And then if you do, I'll give you a hundred bucks. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, I want you to come with at least a concrete proposal. And it needs to be kind of in the spirit of Biddle. So it should be something that, you know, you, you actually did inside that week. Nice. But like the metatextual read of that is actually, I just want to inspire creativity. The hundred dollars doesn't really matter. It's the permission to be like, well, go do something interesting and, and I'll reward you for it. Like a hundred bucks isn't really a big deal to, to most people, right? And we got amazing stuff out of it. We got oh, just- really? just incredible just i mean there's so much drive and creativity and 
we, I'll, I'll give you a few things. We, we had one person make like this weird custom musical instrument made out of like buttons and frets and things like That's that. Awesome. And, 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 and they played it for us. And, and that was super cool. We had another person who created uh, an incubator like an incubator for for chicken eggs because they are replicate they are working towards being able to replicate this experiment that this Japanese laboratory did where they will were able to grow chicken embryos outside the egg. Oh wow! And we got a we got a chick out of it whose name is Hercules. <laughs> That's awesome. We had we had another person who um, did created a release system for their balloon launched orbital uh, orbital glider, and and that caught fire in the process of making it. So we got to, you know, we got to, we got that. We got amazing stuff. We had, um, we had uh, another person, you know, designing turbo machinery and doing all the CFD for it. I mean, just giving people permission and then showing that, hey, like other people are making stuff, that stuff you want to make, you should just go ahead and make it. I'm going to, I'm like, I'm going to allow you. I'm, I believe in you that you, that you'll do this, you know? And, and what's more is like, Everybody, pretty much everybody who signed up was 100% successful. Like really? they didn't, tweet, awesome. they just made stuff and they came back with something really cool that they had made. That's awesome. And this is, I mean, it speaks to how cheap this is. It's like, we, we, I think we did like 25 of these things. Right now, we're in the process of creating like a new platform for it. Cause I was managing this out of like my Twitter DMs and yeah. like a spreadsheet oh, and nice. Google Calendar. And it was like, it was driving me insane. I'm like, I cannot keep doing this. Right, so it's built, too much to manage. It's, it's too much. It's like, somebody pointed out to me that it's exactly the same as like trying to manage a venture fund. And I was like, oh. <laughs> no, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're, we're building out a web platform right now. Uh, we're hoping to relaunch hopefully next month, maybe sooner. Um, but the other thing that we want to be able to do is again, because this was such a cheap experiment. Yeah. And we kind of saw people like, doing a little bit their version of it. They were like, oh, I'll give, you know, whoever makes this or like whoever yeah. does this thing, you know, hundred bucks, 500, whatever. Yeah. Um, and we went, okay, so we're like, okay, great. Well, obviously people want to do this and like maybe they want to have a different theme to Biddle, but you know, it's, it's let, let's let's make it really easy for people to run these really small, cheap micro grant experiments. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're working on releasing that. The other thing that was surprising actually is just people came out of the woodwork to donate like that's awesome i got i got tons of messages on on the subject being like hey you know can i back some of this like what's going on so you know that's the other thing we had to we were working on building in a way to like back this and have people you know sponsor sponsor or like donate for concrete projects and then they can hang out in like the show and tell or to you know just grants in general or anything like that um right most of that first round came out of my pocket but like and and i i, I was mostly turning donations down because i was like i don't have the infrastructure to process to this deal with it yeah way. that's that's yeah. great and well we'd love to contribute this next time if, if you that's helpful at all we'd love to and oh, definitely I, spread I the really, message i really cool. appreciate that I, I will let you guys know when we're back up and running very cool yeah and this actually reminds me have you ever heard of, heard of harry nyquist at bell labs I mean, Nyquist is, uh, is a very familiar name from electrical engineering. Yes. Um, he did some stuff in like communication theory as well. I, I'm not. Yeah, I, that's I'm, right. Nyquist, the Nyquist criteria, Nyquist sampling, all those things. Right. 
so I'm less clear on that stuff, but I do know there's a book about Bell Labs and they talk about how there's this, they're trying to figure out who the most successful people were creating patents. And it turned out the only thing they could find was the most successful people always had lunch with Harry. And like Harry would like just like talk to them like, yeah, you should really like follow through that and ask good questions and things. And it kind of sounds like those grants, right? It's like permission to go out there like in the world and do things. Um, people miss that. I, I don't know. It's And it's really important. There's like some, some I guess like uh, there's resistance that builds up in people's minds to go out and do things. Um, I have this kind of like, it's almost a, I don't know, it's almost a principle at this point where barring certain material circumstances, you know, obviously, obviously it's not true for, for people in general, but I think especially in the society that we live in, a lot of people would be happier if they were aware of the full spectrum of choices that were actually available to them instead of the ones that they just happen to have in their mind at any given time. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, like, the way that I always frame this to myself, and again, this is a gross oversimplification. It's it, that's not applicable to everyone. I was like, well, no matter how how wrong this thing goes, I can always move to you know rear and and work on a fishing boat, right? It's like, you you can just do that. That that's a lot. Yes. Portuguese isn't that hard to learn. You'll be okay. That's right. You know, and and when you start framing things like that, like, well, okay, well, what are my actual like real choices here? And, and like Biddle, Biddle is kind of a version of that. It's like, well, you, you know, you, you've been trapped in the Twitter discourse for like, since you got an account, but what if I told you, you could do this other thing, which is better and more fun. And there are more like, options yeah, out I there. Yeah, I could do that. Like that's better. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's really interesting. So I, I run a Slate Star Codex meetup. And um, one of the things that I really like to do, cause you know, everybody, you know, they're quite smart, but a lot of them don't, you know, I'll ask him like, you know, how was your week? It's like, well, you know, I work at this big tech company and it's like, it's drudgery and I don't really like it. I'd really like to be working on this other thing, but you know, with this startup, but you know, yeah, I don't know, maybe in the future. And then I, I do this thing, I call it hazing, but I make them and I write the email for them to the founder to, or like to whatever organization they actually want to be working for and make them send it like while we're on the call. And, you know, people have gotten like responses from different folks and, and, but, you know, people just get so trapped in that, like your day to day, right. Just like you said, and, and they forget that the downside risk is really like, there's no real downside. Like it's so small nowadays. It's, it's difficult to quantify, but like the worst possible outcome is, is mostly not so bad. Like if, right. you know, if you're the sort of person who has a big 10 company job and you're miserable, well, you can probably just go back to a big tech company job if this. You can just work go out. back. They like it if you come from another big tech company. That's right. Exactly. Well, and so, this is this misallocation of risk, right? Between the risk is like the real risk is wasting your time here, not you know that you end up on a fishing boat, and and the fishing boat might be nice actually. Yeah, I mean, so you know, the, I don't know if risk is the right framing because risk implies that you have some quantity of something that you are could possibly lose but you know and 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 that's a very you know given that you run a slate star codex meetup that's a very rationalist way of looking at the right. world. Um, which you know it's it's almost derivative of, of utilitarian philosophy but i think it's actually a more general principle than just that i i don't think that you have to regard it as sort of risk reward i think it's possible to regard it as just here is the branching set of decisions that i have that exist available to me and i can pursue the subset of that, like there's basically there's a much larger subset of that 
than most people have in their awareness most of the time. And, and this was a neat little experiment to sort of in part expand that on, in both sides. Like you can just give money to young people. Like you can just do that. It, it, you know, if, if you're like, oh, I wish I could foster creativity. I don't know, this costs like 2,500 bucks and we got 25 cool projects out of it. Just go do it. <laughs> Well, it, it reminds me of Don's work. It's like, you know, it just, it's no money. I mean, it's, it's just no, it's it, nothing. It's, not, it's no money. It's, it, it's just mind blowing. I'm actually, I, I mean, another part of it is I'm actually pretty um, inspired by a friend of mine, Sonia Mann, um, who is like, she, she also hazes me in the sense of like, you keep talking about these things, but like, I'm going to stop taking you seriously unless you actually do it. <laughs> Um, which has been really good for me because now I've got like a little Sonia in the back of my mind. That's great. That's really helpful. <laughs> like, yeah. You need that. You know, you need that. You need somebody breathing that your neck. She's secretly terrifying. So like that's, that's, a, that's a motivator. <laughs> <It> really works. <laughs> that's great. Um, I wanted to move on now and ask you just uh, some overrated, underrated questions and like maybe a sentence why. Well, before you get to overrated, yeah. underrated, can I ask Anton a question? Sure, absolutely. Anton, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Uh, I am generally optimistic about both for a few different reasons. One is regardless of the problems that we see in the world today, humans collectively have lived through or overcome problems that in their time were we like we didn't even have ideas about how to begin solving we simply didn't have the knowledge to do so we and if we did have the knowledge we certainly wouldn't have had the resources to enact any of those solutions so in that sense our problems are not bigger than what's gone before and we're actually doing better because we are living in a time where we've preserved and built up enough knowledge that we can start like we can we can seriously like if we get our act together we can just we can just do things we can figure out what needs to be done and then do the thing um and i know i know that people like bostrom are always talking about like well as we develop technically we put ourselves at greater and greater risk i'm not sure that i really agree with that because the worst the worst risks that we could in principle face are always going to be external um and so our ability, like our technical capability as it develops will make us better able to actually deal with those external risks that we didn't generate ourselves. We, we, we had a, so from, the, from those two places, I'm an optimist. From, from history and from our current position and, and, and from where we're at and just like humanity collectively and individually has gone through horrible things. Just, just awful, awful. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you've read about, for example, the Thirty Years' War in Europe, but <laughs> in terms of, in, in terms of, for example, fraction of populations involved one way or another in that war, we haven't seen anything like it in hundreds of years. Um, and with any luck, we never will again. Um, if if we talk about sort of you know issues with environmental degradation, we're we're at a point where a lot of these are uh, they're problems of chemistry. We could in principle solve them if we commit to solve them through technological means. But even beyond that, the fact that we understand that there is a problem and we've, give, we've given ourselves the time to be able to address it and we're in a position where we have the knowledge. I mean, I have to be optimistic. I think, I think to be a pessimist is, is a strange choice in light of historical and material fact. Um, what that future exactly is gonna look like and how long things will take to get better and in what sense will they be better, I don't know. 
but in the sense of in the sense of will humanity continue to you know move into the future and improve and just you know hopefully making people's lives better and easier i think we will um and of course one way to think about that is like we're almost on a on a society-wide hedonic treadmill people people from the past would kill to have some of our problems yes. and, and some of them literally <laughs> did i mean yes. No, and again, but that, that's not to minimize, that's not to minimize the problems that we do have. There are different sets of problems. They're also horrible, but we're, we're at least in a place where we, we, we actually like seriously consider overcoming them instead of being like, well, this is what life is. Like I, you know, I, I, I slave away in my field under the um, auspices of my local Lord and then I die. Right. Yep. And hopefully sufficient, a sufficient number of my 15 children live long enough that like I'm supported into old age when my body is working. Should I live that long? You know, Anton, you, you sound almost as much like a rationalist as you do an optimist. <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to admit, um, I've been reading David Deutsch's book, Beginning of Infinity, lately, and I have, a, I have a lot of problems with it, but I like a lot of the way he frames some ideas I guess I've always carried around. So I guess I may have related some of that in his words, but I, generally I agree. Although there's a lot in that book I disagree with fundamentally, so... Good stuff. All right. So overrated or underrated? Um, the Soviet Union. Difficult. Um, so I would say generally overrated by people in the West uh, and overrated by people in the former Soviet Union. But the, it's important to remember that the Soviets were not a monolith. Um, and there's different parts of it. I mean, if you say something like Kolmogorov, under, underrated or overrated, well, regardless of how highly you rate him is still underrated when he was part of the Soviet system. Right. But if you say something like collective farming in the 1920s, <laughs> different thing, pretty bad. <laughs> so it's, good. it's, it's difficult to, it's difficult to reply to something like that. I, I certainly think that as a, as a social structure, it had pretty bad problems and probably isn't as rosy as a lot of people who want to re resurrect its ghost believe that it was even for ordinary average people. Gotcha. That's good. Uh, modern robotics. I know that's an area you work in. That's right. Um, inter internal to the field, uh, I think we have pretty clear eyes. Externally, strongly overrated about what people think robots can do. Um, gotcha. You see really nice Boston Dynamics videos, and then right. the thing about them is, is they're they, they move really nice, um, but they they can't they don't they, they don't do much because they don't understand the world very well, and that's sort of the hardest problem right now. Gotcha. And that's an area you're working in now. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I, I work in, in robotic perception, 3D computer vision, those sorts of things. Gotcha, gotcha. Very interesting. Um, so driverless cars, overrated, underrated? Well, yeah. I think we've seen the consolidation of that industry over the last while, and nobody's making money on it still. Um, right. But at the same time, like we already had a meteor downturn about it. I think what, what's going to happen is like every, like every piece of technology of that form, like it's going to bear fruit but 10 years from now. And maybe in gotcha. unexpected ways. Gotcha. And, and on the same token, uh, modern robotics, you know, like you see the Boston dynamics. You, and like you said, uh, you know, how long until we've got, you know, the sci-fi, you know, I, and I know how long is very difficult, but is it far, far off? Or is there like a pathway you see to like, you know, household robotics that are kind so of you're like- talking, You're talking about something like Rosie from the Jetsons, right? Yes, exactly. So you have, you know, you have some general purpose robot that can do all the domestic chores in your home. Right. <laughs> that problem is virtually equivalent to having artificial general intelligence. In so it's like, it's, wait, it's so far off, can't even- 
I, I, not a real I would pathway. say that however, however you estimate that, you need to peg your estimate to wherever you think AGI is going, is gotcha. going to come in. Because so, so, they're essentially the same thing. And I'm actually not convinced that like general self-driving isn't the same problem. Gotcha. So it's, it's fairly, it's very, very difficult. That's really good. I will give you, I will give you bands of between 30 and 100 years. Gotcha. But I could be way off. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because you do see, you know, it's very vivid. Like, you know, the, like you said, the Boston Dynamics robots running around. and mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Malthus, overrated, underrated? Misunderstood. Uh, and I'll agree with, with Tyler Cowan about that. Malthus wasn't actually wrong, as I said in, in the stakes. Um, I think he's definitely misunderstood and misinterpreted in our time. And he ought to be re-examined. Gotcha. That's good. Well, Anton, thank you for coming on. Um, where can people find your work? And is there any parting shots you'd like to leave people with? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at A-T-R-O-Y-N. Um, you can find my website at troynikov.io. Um, as for a parting shot, I mean, I sort of, all the talks I've given and everything I've done in the inter, inter intellect salons have always had the same thing. People need to remember that they are actors in history and that they, in their time, in their place, can have an influence on the world. And I think that the first step to like making things or changing things for the better is, is, is remembering that history, history isn't done and history isn't this fictional account of what went before. Real people went through this. Real people made choices at the time and so can you. That's, that's, that's where I'd like to leave. I love that. I really love that. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Thank Anton. You well. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.